0: initial set of interviews on hardly working we're attempting to build up a very specific argument chiefly we want to propose that vocation career and work doesn't just magically appear in our lives rather our careers and professional lives are part of a continuum of learning and development that builds slowly over time and is built upon interests that are fundamental to our personalities characters and backgrounds so far we've had conversations relating to neuroscience and the need for greater balance between technical and implicit skills as a prerequisite for success in the modern economy. We've looked at early childhood as a foundation for the development of implicit skills, which form the foundation of all learning and social development. But there's one step that precedes the formation and function of the brain and the emergence of new people in the form of babies. Any guesses about what it is? If you said marriage and family, you're right. It has often been noted that the family is the first educator, the seedbed of virtue. It's also the seedbed of skill development. Schools and civic institutions can have a huge impact, but they pale in comparison to the influence of parents, siblings, and extended family networks. It is in these intimate relationships that we are formed physically, intellectually, and socially into the adults we ultimately become. Many have pointed to the structural changes in the economy, away from manufacturing and toward information and services, that have created barriers to fruitful employment and careers. But there's another angle we need to examine to get a fuller picture, the way that changes in family structure have affected life outcomes for children, including their economic outcomes. The social science in this regard is conclusive. Children who grow up with the benefit of two parents who are committed to them and to one another do better on a range of social and economic outcomes. They do better in school, graduate from high school and college at higher rates, have lower rates of criminal justice involvement, are more frequently employed, and earn higher salaries. No family is perfect, and a perfect family isn't the goal, but growing up in a functioning, intact home remains one of the biggest advantages we can give our kids. The trouble is that for decades, American society has been experiencing high levels of divorce and unmarried births. Too many of our relationships are failing, and too many of our children lack the critical formation and support they receive from family. Given those problems, it's no surprise that many children and adults don't do as well as they should in school and work. In recognition of these challenges, the federal government began funding programs in 2005 that support healthy marriage and relationship education for low-income couples. These programs provide voluntary, healthy marriage and relationship education through local community-based organizations. These programs work to help families form and stay together. To look at the results of those programs, I'm joined today by Dr. Alan Hawkins, the Camilla E. Kimball Endowed Professor of Family Life at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Dr. Hawkins is also the author of a recent AEI report looking at the history, implementation, And evaluation of healthy marriage and relationship programs for AEI. We're also joined by Dr. Brad Wilcox, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Virginia, and a visiting scholar here at AEI, who is also a leading authority on research into marriage and family. Brad Allen, thank you for joining me today on Hardly Working.
1: Thanks, Brad. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, great to have you. And we've had a busy day here on the marriage front at AEI, just wrapped up a session with some of our leading researchers and practitioners in the domain of healthy marriage. And we want to go just a little bit deeper than we went in that event over the next half hour or so. So for those who may not be steeped in the history and philosophy of the federal Healthy Marriage Responsible Fatherhood Program, I wanted to ask you first, Brad, to kind of walk us through from a research standpoint to talk about why marriage is a public policy issue? Because I don't know that everybody agrees that it is or should be.
2: Yeah, I think there's been a lot of disagreement about kind of the importance of family structure when it comes to child well-being, you know, in the last really 50 years in the wake of a pretty dramatic set of changes around divorce, non-marital childbearing, single parenthood, all of which really spiked in in the late 60s and 70s and 80s when that change was happening initially a lot of scholars kind of made the argument that the kids are pretty resilient you know there can be a stressful period of time when they're when they're you know reacting to a divorce for instance but you know give them a few years and they'll kind of they'll kind of rebound but as more and more research was done in this space we came to find that you know a substantial minority of kids had long-term you know, consequences following from, you know, their parents' inability to kind of keep their family lives together. And the work done by Sarah McClanahan at Princeton, for instance, was emblematic of this. I mean, she was someone who herself was divorced and remarried, um, studying single parents and their kids for many, many years. And after doing just a ton of research on this question, really came to the conclusion that, you know, on average, kids are more likely to flourish. In intact married families. And this was kind of in the early 90s that she was coming out with this, this line of research and was picked up in, in the press with the Dan Quayle Was Right story in The Atlantic by Barbara Defoe Whitehead. And so, I think at that moment in time, in the 1990s, more and more sort of center-left scholars um, like Sarah McClanahan and Belsala Brookings kind of came around to the importance of marriage. So, that kind of, I think, gave some additional impetus and legitimacy for later public policy efforts, like the one that Wade Horn, you know, really spearheaded that we're talking about today, the Healthy Marriage Initiative, to try to figure out ways that public policy might be, you know, marshaled to strengthen and stabilize family life, um, in part with an eye towards the role of strengthening marriage.
0: Can I I ask you a question about this? Because it's something that I've... I've puzzled over. You start talking about marriage and you inevitably move almost immediately as you did to children. If I'm hearing you correctly, we're really principally interested in marriage from the standpoint of what happens to kids or is there something else?
1: I do think there's something else, Brent. Um, I, I think it's appropriate to keep a strong focus on the kids. Uh, there's no question there. But I think we can also, uh, even if we were to factor that out, we see incredible changes in society because of the thinning of the institution of marriage, particularly around men's lack of involvement in that institution and the critical function of parenting. And that does things to adults uh, as well, that we we are struggling with as a society. I don't know that we can draw, you know, really strong direct lines between that and some of the some of the uh, social problems that and the economic problems that we're facing. But there's at least indirect lines there. Uh, so I do think it is wider than uh, just um, the kids.
0: Yeah, just the kids, just the future. It's also about the present. Yeah. Um, what's going on in relationships, a sense of social
1: isolation that is associated with. Those are incredible public health issues. We know that how well-connected people are in their human relationships uh, is incredibly important to um, to a health uh, in, a, in, a, in our adult years. And uh, the most important of those relationships uh, really is, is the most intimate and most long-lasting one.
0: Yeah, I just think it's
1: really important
0: to like, we're always bearing in mind that marriage is a good it's a but it's a good for both generations right it's a good for adults and it's a good for kids and that also points to this you know the original question about why is this a public policy issue a happier healthier society is key to a whole range of other outcomes that we want that we want to see so moving on from that not everybody agrees with Brad's analysis with your analysis and i'd be interested in hearing from both of you actually about what you think uh, or where you think the opposition to healthy marriage, responsible fatherhood, well, chiefly healthy marriage and relationship education comes from. I think one one part of the story
2: here is that obviously, the family structure has become much more diverse since the 1970s. And so, there are plenty of scholars on the left who would like to basically kind of recognize, acknowledge, and, and lift up that family diversity um, kind of almost as a value in and of itself. I think there's also a desire not to kind of blame the victim, to kind of blame, you know, people for a range of different circumstances end up as single parents or as non-residential parents. Um, I think that's part of the story as well Um, in terms of motivating people's kind of concern about these issues and being concerned about using the M word. There's also kind of a parallel perspective on the left that what really matters is not uh, family structure per se, but family process. So love makes a family, not a marriage certificate is kind of, a think, the idea here. Um, and it's certainly true that if you actually look at... The, the dynamics in any given family, whatever its structure, when there is more affection, there is, you know, more consistent discipline, there's more attention, you know, for kids, you know, these proximate processes are the most important predictors of, of kids' outcomes and of family outcomes more generally. And so they're right about the importance of family process, but what they don't necessarily publicly acknowledge is that those, you know, those processes tend to be better not always of course, but tend to be better in intact married families. We've got two parents who are committed to one another and often have a biological connection to the kids which motivates them, um, equips them, enables them to be more affectionate, more attentive and better disciplinary.
1: Yeah. And I would argue, Brad, that it's, it's not just a probability, um, but that there are processes involved um, in long-term committed relationships and in marriage. That facilitate those better processes, so it's not just a matter of chance. Um, that there's there's a pretty strong causal link um, between structure and process. You know, um, when critics have been attacking this uh, healthy marriage and relationship education initiative and the responsible fatherhood initiative, they often want to paint a picture that all of these things are derivative of economics, of uh, economic well-being in our society. And if we were able to fix that part um that these other things would all be solved and i am one who certainly thinks um more uh, i sure hope that they can find the right levers to pull to to make a better stronger fairer economic society for all i i think there's no question that that's going to help but it's not going to move us all the way or even nearly as much of the way as we need
0: and from my standpoint i think they're they've got it the wrong way around i mean i it's not that the economic conditions don't matter and, you know, not having access to employment doesn't make marriage more difficult. I think that's true. But I I also think that if you conceive of society as being formed from the ground up, rather than, you know, manipulated from the top down, it really calls our attention to what's going on inside our families that gets reflected in some of the negative economic outcomes that we're seeing, I see this in the workforce development sphere all the time, which is you talk to employers about what's missing in the workforce. They don't actually reach for technical skills as their main concern. What they reach for is soft skills, non-cognitive skills, implicit skills, relationship skills. Well, where do those things come from? And we know from the research and the science that the capacity for that is actually built extremely early in the life of a human being. And the more stress that you put on those early years, the harder time kids have, I think, in developing that matrix of social and emotional relationship skills that then permits them to function well in the workforce. It, it forms the capacity for learning and then it forms the capacity for working in teams and communicating and all the things that we need. In the workforce, so I, what I would say is, it, it's true there are barriers in the economy that we need to deal with. It's also true that people are coming to those barriers disadvantaged, and we need to look at that as well. Let's use that to shift a little bit and just, Alan, I'd really like you to walk us through this report you've done for us, and we'll include this in the show notes for this podcast. We commissioned you to do a study for us, or a report actually for us on. Sort of summarizing what we know about the federal investment in healthy marriage and relationship education. So I'd just like you to walk through kind of what are the highlights of that report?
1: Well, about 15 years ago, the federal government, under the direction of then Assistant Secretary Wade Horn, decided that they wanted to take a shot at this. Can we do some kinds of programming that are going to help couples form and sustain? healthy relationships, and enduring marriages. There were a lot of different directions they could have gone, but they developed a primary funding stream to support community-based organizations in reaching out to these mostly uh, disadvantaged couples and to help them strengthen their relationship with relationship education programming and services. And I think the evidence is uh, there was certainly a concern. Well, are people even going to be interested in these kinds of things? And I think the research has been pretty strong there. There is a keen interest there, although it's a fairly small pot of money by federal standards. We seem to be reaching 180 to 190 thousand people a year in these programs: youth, young adults, married, unmarried, step families—a wide range. Also. Most of them are clearly poor or near poor, a great deal of racial and ethnic diversity. Even some of the current programs report serving same-sex couples. And so it's reaching a very diverse group at significant numbers at a pretty modest cost in terms of government programming. We certainly have made progress at that level. So, so we've we placed a bet, a public policy bet.
0: We could improve the likelihood of of families forming and helping them to remain together by investing in these community based organizations that are doing relationship education at the ground level, really working in local neighborhoods and communities. So, how would you characterize the
1: results coming out of this? You know, I think, you know, first thing I would say is that it's been very impressive, a very serious and extensive agenda of evaluation was put in place from the very beginning of this. And that's unusual. You usually wait a decade or two, get your feet wet, learn how to do this, and then you go through the evaluation process. But uh, this came at the same time that the federal government was starting to stress more and more evidence-based programming and policy, knowing that there would be some controversy and some criticism of this initiative. The Administration for Children and Families uh, put significant energy and resources behind an evaluation uh, component to what was going on, including several gold standard, uh, rigorous experimental studies evaluating the impact of these programs.
0: I really like the way Wade talked about this, Wade Horn, who was the progenitor of all of this, that the better your program design, the better your evaluation design, the more likely you are to get zero results.
1: Which so. is what we saw coming right out of the chute. The yep. first large gold standard study, that evaluation study that was done did not find general impacts. There's some minor things and one of the sites had some positive. Impact, but overall, it was not encouraging. It was the no impact. And many of the critics kind of attached to that first study and said, we're wasting our time science has proven this won't work. Well, that's not the way science works. It's slower, it's iterative, and you learn and you grow, and especially in the policy field. As subsequent studies came out, they began to find more positive impact. Not big impacts, small to medium impacts on the quality of couple relationships. Some studies showing some impact on less divorce. So creating greater family stability by keeping families together, married and unmarried. And even uh, studies showing less violence in these relationships. And I think also noteworthy is also seeing some some impact on children's behavior and on uh, better parenting and co-parenting going on. They haven't been dramatic, but in the most rigorous work that we've done, we're beginning to see some impact, especially for those who are more disadvantaged as they come to these programs. Probably that means they're really more motivated. They really want this relationship to work. It's not working has much bigger, stronger and negative effects on them than it does, you know, the average well-educated college graduate. I
0: mean, it's an interesting point that we need to draw out a little bit, I think here, which is that while they may be more motivated, one of the things we've also found is they're much higher need and that those two things may be related, so...
1: I think there are some more positive. Now, it's not just that there are, uh, I've counted more than 50 studies uh, that have been done on these programs um, with various methods. And you kind of put that all together. And it shows uh, some disappointing findings, yes, Uh, some encouraging findings, especially so early on in this policy initiative and its history. And some more nuanced findings about who benefits the most and maybe um, how we can uh, start to improve uh, what we do. And uh, and I think we're on the verge uh, of another wave of studies coming out in the next year that are going to um, also be very instructive in helping us learn how to do this work to help couples form and sustain these healthy relationships and these strong marriages.
0: After listening to you this morning and again this afternoon, I mean, one of the things that it occurs to me is that in a sense, the way that the Federal Healthy Marriage uh, and Relationship Education Program was developed and rolled out may actually be a model for what we wanna do on a wide range of social policy interventions because of the rigor, both of the design of the programs, but also this early evaluation. If we put all that in the context of that, you have to wait for a while to see what's happening in these programs. My experience looking at a bunch of other domains is that uh, it is the norm, not just to not get those results up front, but to ever get results. What we often see is with a lot of our big social policy interventions is that year after year, decade after decade, they don't produce positive impacts. And i that's my impression. I don't know if Brad, if you share that, if you've seen that. Yeah, well, I I mean, that was one of the points that was interesting that Wade Horn
2: brought. It was just that the work of Peter Rossi and others suggests that, you know, kind of the net effect of a lot of social policy is about zero. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, we don't find that many policies actually really move the needle very much in people's lives, unfortunately. So, you know, it's encouraging. There are some signs that some programs are working, you know, as your report um, indicates, Alan. And we've also seen, too... And the private arena um, with uh, this effort in Jacksonville, for instance, from Culture Freedom Initiative, that they looked, you know, pretty robust in terms of their ability to bring divorce down. And Jacksonville... There was an initiative that came out of the Philanthropy Roundtable that was designed to work with churches and nonprofits. They had a digital dimension to the campaign where they were sending out, I think, videos and advertisements. They had public events that were designed to bring couples out for, you know, date nights and things like that. And across all these different events, they had kind of a marriage-friendly theme being articulated. And Rolling that on 2016 and tracking divorce rates, you know, since then divorce came down more than 20% basically in the course of, you know, two to three years there in Jacksonville. So it suggests that, you know, in this case, a private initiative that's working across a number of different fronts, both, you know, in the culture, online, in churches and nonprofits can have some success in moving the needle in terms of stabilizing marriage. So that's also kind of one more thing to think about Are there private models that we can encourage philanthropists to get behind that will also do important work in this space. And often they have more flexibility, both in terms of just, you know, their bureaucratic flexibility, but also in terms of kind of articulating the values and virtues that are required to sustain strong marriages, you know, because they're not directly tied to um, the federal government. So that's one more, I, I think tool to sort of think about using in terms of this agenda.
1: And I agree. I think the church has a really important role to play in this. Um, And actually, if we ask um, these participants who come to these kinds of relationship strengthening programs, you know, where would you most like to get this from? Most of the times they'll say, we'd like it to be religiously based. We'd like to get it from our faith-based communities. Uh, there's, there's a kind of synergy and a strength mm-hmm. um, that is really important. And uh, n- not something that I think a federal government-supported uh, initiative uh, can help with very much. I mean, yeah, maybe around the edges. but um, So, I think there's a really important role for the private sector, and partic- particularly the faith sector, to make these kinds of programs and services available uh, in their communities, and and not just to their congregants, but to many who would prefer to receive these services in a faith-based environment. And I think that includes, you know, lower-income couples who often are not seen as often in the pews, but in many ways are more religious and more spiritual, Mm. and, and really trust that institution so I do think there's an important role there uh, yeah, for the church. I, I couldn't to play. agree more.
0: I mean, I, religions, generally speaking, are in the marriage business. That's one of their main functions, and we can't, while we can't spend public dollars on explicitly religious activities. Those institutions can be feeder mechanisms and places for delivery of services, even if they aren't strictly religious um, or explicitly religious in their contents. So yes, those partnerships are are really critical. So Alan, I wanted to ask you about some of your thoughts on thinking about
1: marriage as a public health issue, because I thought that was really interesting. The federal funding for this work has focused primarily on pretty intensive educational programming and services for couples. And, and and it's a tough challenge, and it's a heavy lift for some program to help couples achieve their desires for these healthy and stable and strong marriages. I think there's an important service that's provided there. But let's not forget that that doesn't reach a significant proportion of, of our population. And we all struggle with the formation and maintenance of our relationships, these incredibly intimate relationships in which we invest so much hope and we kind of almost put them up on a pedestal. This is hard to do. I think there's more that we can be doing. You might want to call it more of a micro-intervention, but more of a public health approach to preventing these problems, helping youth and young adults to understand what a healthy relationship is. Avoid the common pitfalls that make it harder to achieve those relationships? And what are the basic fundamental human skills that make these relationships workable? A number of things that can be done on a much broader scale, much more sort of micro-targeted, if you will, rather than insisting you have 12 to 24 hours of programming over three to six months to help strengthen your relationship. That's a big, big ask. And very motivated individuals will do so, and I do think they can derive some benefit. But we need to be thinking bigger than that. And we need to be thinking cultural change. We're cultural creatures, and if we could find some of those levers to nudge the culture one way or the other... Maybe we can prevent more of these situations that make it hard. and, and maybe we nudge to nudge the
0: culture by nudging the individuals. Last year, I signed up for a dieting app and this dieting app, I have a person who is responsible for tracking my whether I'm keeping track of what I'm eating, right? So if I miss a meal or two, if didn't I don't enter it into my phone, I get a text from Marissa. Who says? I notice you've missed a couple of meals. Don't forget, this is you know this is really important, and that kind of social use of social media to nudge people toward healthier behaviors is pretty effective. At least it's been effective for me in this domain, and I and I really think that it. Could be effective, and, and
1: and part of that nudging and Brad could speak to this is also getting rid of the barriers that that are those anti nudges. Yeah, um, and I think there still are some of those policy barriers out there. Yeah, uh, particularly I think for the for the uh, poor working class um, uh, in our society.
0: Yeah, Brad, did you want to? Yeah, r- just I mean, yeah, we've
2: got a report coming out soon, basically, that suggests that for working class Americans, there's often barriers around things like Medicaid and um, child care, you know, subsidies um, from the federal and state governments. Um, so, uh, you know, I was talking to a couple in Virginia a couple months ago, and they're together, they've got two beautiful little daughters, and but they weren't married. I'm like, well, what's going on here? And they said, well, they actually had sat down at the kitchen table and they calculated out. You know what would happen to the mom's Medicaid and then the kids' Medicaid, were they to marry and kind of present their their joint income, and they would lose access to health healthcare insurance because his company did not pay health insurance for his family. So that's a concrete example of the
0: way in which I think one of the barriers here to to marriage um, and is around. I've always been just a little bit skeptical of that, but I think that healthcare example is a really good one because when you there's so much anxiety. Around access to insurance, if you start messing with people's insurance, that's a really powerful push to say we need to think about this because we we don't have any other health care coverage. And so i I hadn't considered the Medicaid side of this. I think it's right. really important.
2: But I think too, it. I mean, the the reality that Wade Horn was talking about today in our session was that the pop culture is not really aligned with marriage, right? So you've got a lot of people out there who aren't very well formed in in terms of their. Their normative appreciation of marriage, and then you know they have some apprehension, some understanding that you know they could lose access to food stamps or or health care or childcare subsidies, um, and you know that understanding and that awareness in, in their networks can tip you know the the scale towards non-marriage. So it's not the only thing by any stretch, but you know I think it does sort of um, unfortunately reinforce the sort of family instability pattern that we've seen emerge among working-class Americans since the
0: 1980s. Very interesting. I'm gonna let you go here shortly, but I've got an exit question for you both, which is based on what we have learned over the last since 2005 when these programs really started to take off, at least from the federal level, and what we've learned since that, since the introduction of the Healthy Marriage and Relationship Education program, where if if you were, if you had the authority to say, here's what we need to do next, what would that be? Well, I think one thing that we need to do more is to
2: think about, you know, prevention here. And so I think trying to encourage our schools, our public schools and private schools for that matter, including religious schools. And, of course, the pop culture creators to not paint a fairy tale, not in you know, rose-colored lenses thing about family life, but just actually the reality, you know. The reality is, is often difficult and, and hard for, I think, you know, most families at different points in their lives. But just to just sort of say, look, folks, if you can manage to, you know, get your education, get a job, get married before having kids, and then keep together through thick and thin, you know, the odds that your kids are going to flourish, the odds that you're going to flourish socially and financially are just much, much higher. Mm. And if people have that broader awareness about kind of the way in which this success sequence is a path towards, you know, relative prosperity, towards the American dream, you know, that would be a real service to the the public. The government has some role to play in that potentially, but then also obviously a range of, of... of private, both corporate and civic actors also would be, uh, I think, needed for this effort as well. Yeah,
0: no, that's a great point.
1: Uh, There's also, I think, a number of things that we can be doing that... Will improve on what we've started with uh, this more intensive uh, relationship strengthening programming that we've got. Um, we're still pretty early on in our learning curve there, and um, you know, first of all, there are some that have are farther up on that curve and have really shown that they they know what they're doing. They can uh, bring the people in and they can show positive effects. You know, we need to, I think, be supportive of that and help. Those groups help the others learn. I also think, though, we need to be more innovative in this field. How do we help those who have a motivation for forming and sustaining these healthy relationships? How, how are we going to help them? I think one other thing we can do is, is, is get some funding behind some creative ideas, things that outside the box kinds of ideas that we ought to be testing a little bit. Because, you know, 12 to 24 hours of educational programming is a really big ask. Yeah. To to leave your house and go somewhere and do
0: something for 24 hours over a two-month period is a a huge... It it is. And... Especially if you've got little kids. So,
1: let's try some other kinds of things. The analogy that I have is uh, I'm old enough that I remember um, the old uh, DOS language that you had to use to make a personal computer work. You had to know the language to tell it what to do. You had to type it in. You know, that's ridiculous. Um, we we live in the age of, of click and drag kind of mm-hmm. thing, and we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But I wonder if we can help individuals learn that there are some basic fundamental things, that we can do, that we can all do, regardless of our circumstances in life, that make an important difference. We don't have to fix every little piece of the system, but if we can fix that one thing, there's some other things that come along with that, that gives you more hope about the relationship and its potential and its future. And uh, I I just think there's got to be some more of that out there that will be more efficient. Yeah, I just, I really love that point. I think it's
0: a good one to go out on because ultimately, what's going to support marriage in this country are the decisions of millions and millions of individuals. And having that information, like the impact of on your marriage of speaking with kindness and respect to one another, you know, the incredibly important role that that plays in sustaining a marriage, you know, that's a very simple thing and you don't have to be, you know, go to 14 hours of training in order to understand that that's an important thing. So, I just think that that's really a good insight. And if
1: we can get those really powerful messages out a little bit of time over time, Mm we may be able to accomplish uh, more efficiently what a 24-hour educational program does for the few who are motivated enough and disciplined enough to take advantage of that.
0: Well, Brad, Alan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a very fruitful, helpful discussion, and I look forward to more conversations like this. Thanks, Brent. Thank you.